Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interaction. Welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name is Adam Farmer and I'm a gastroenterologist at the Wingate Institute in London. This month it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Beverly Greenwood van Meerveld and Dr. Dawn Prusator. Beverly is a Professor of Physiology and has been Director of the Oklahoma Center for Neuroscience and the Presbyterian Health Foundation Chair in Neurosciences at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center since 2004. She's also affiliated with the VA Medical Center and has been a VA career scientist since 2007. Dawn Prusator is a postdoc working in Beverly's lab at the University of Oklahoma and they have recently published a paper entitled Sex Differences in Stress-Induced Visceral Hypersensitivity Following Early Life Adversity, a two-hit model. So welcome back to the podcast to you both and congratulations on your publication. I can't believe that nearly two years have uh, gone by since we did the first podcast with you. So Beverly, what is already known about early life adversity in clinical populations of irritable bowel syndrome? Well, first of all, thank you, Adam, for um, inviting us to, to do this podcast. It's great to be back working with you. I actually didn't realize we were the first podcast. But let's go back to your question. Um, so in the clinical population of um, patients with IBS, there's increasing evidence that early life adverse events, such as neglect, or physical, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, um, as, well as, as well as a lack of perceived parental war, um, can serve as a risk factor for the development of IBS in adults. There's also considerable evidence from the clinical literature indicating that stressful or traumatic events in early life can actually have long-lasting effects on the brain and neuroendocrine system. So from clinical studies, we know that early life stress has been indicated as a risk factor for the development of stress axis dysfunction in adulthood. And then when you combine that with our knowledge that IBS patients exhibit abnormalities in the HPA stress axis, there's a strong correlation between early life adverse events and IBS uh, patients um, in adulthood. So are females with IBS more likely to have encountered early life uh, adversity in comparison to males? Well, you know, as you know, Adam, there's a strong sex-related bias in the prevalence of IBS where more women present with the disorder. So in other words, women are at greater risk for functional pain disorders such as IBS. And evidence um, in IBS patients has shown that they are indeed two to four times more likely to report a history of early life adversity. So in general, women abused as children show increased incidence of stress-related disorders including anxiety, depression, and elevated risk for visceral pain syndromes compared to control women without a history of early life adversity. So there is this female vulnerability, which is in agreement with the female predominance in IBS patients. Now going back to males, clearly males exposed to early life adversity also are at risk for poor health outcomes as, as adults. However, the sexually dimorphic effects of early life adversity Basically, understanding this requires a lot more research to tease out this female vulnerability and potentially male resilience. So these resilience and vulnerability factors in males versus females does require more research. 
I agree, and I think um, those vulnerability factors, whilst being partially defined, I think uh, require a lot more work. So can you explain what the odour attachment learning model involves? Yeah, absolutely, and I'll have Dawn interject as she, as she sees fit, but there are various rodent models of early life adversity, and each attempts to mirror facets of the negative childhood experience. Uh, in the literature, we have models including maternal separation that's been well investigated. We've also worked ourselves on a limited bedding model. Um, each of these models disrupts the mother-infant relationship, and each of these models has been shown to, invis to induce visceral hypersensitivity in adult male rats. Now, this odor attachment learning model offers this unique uh, model uh, which attempts to mirror an abusive childhood relationship. And what we do is we expose neonatal rats to a predictable or unpredictable adverse early life experience through a classical conditioning um, odor shock presentation. But key to this model is the fact that we'd previously shown, actually, it was Aaron Challoner in my lab. He's a past graduate student. He showed it using this model that there's a female-specific visceral hypersensitivity in response to unpredictable early life experience. So we feel this model has its usefulness in recapitulating um, aspects of IBS, which is female predominant and uh, subgroup are exposed to this early life adversity that may be um, something we can investigate or is something we are investigating using this odor attachment learning model. So Dawn, what was the hypothesis as you uh, set out on your study? So as Dr. Greenwood Van Mierveld mentioned, um, Aaron Schellner had previously shown that when we um, subjected these neonates to this odor attachment learning paradigm that we had males who exhibited no visceral uh, hypersensitivity, but the female hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity was context dependent. So um, a female animal who experienced this unpredictable early life stress had this enhanced response. Um, to our assessment. Um, so what we wanted to do is go back to the patient population and sort of look at how we had modeled um, this group of patients who experienced an early life stress and subsequently developed this visceral hypersensitivity and how can we build upon that and look at those um, patients who maybe have this additional stress in their adult life, um, whether it be an acute or a chronic stressor. Um, and what are the vulnerability factors between males and females, between those that have a baseline um, enhancement of visceral sensitivity and those who don't. Um, so specific to our model, we hypothesize that there would be both context and sex-specific differences um, in the response to an adult stressor as a result of early life stress. So what were your main experimental techniques that you used in the study? So we started with our odor attachment learning model. Um, so we conditioned each of these animals from postnatal day 8 through 12, um, and we verified their learning of the paradigm on postnatal day 13. Uh, we allowed them to grow up to adulthood, um, which we um, pinned at postnatal day 90. And then we used a one-hour day water avoidance stress, um, either um, one hour a day for a single day, which was our acute stressor, or a seven-day repetitive WAS paradigm. Um, and then following that, we um, did our visceral sensitivity assessment, so um, colorectal distension, and we quantified the visceral motor response 
Um, we visually observed the number of these abdominal contractions, um, which are very, very obvious, um, especially in this particular strain of rats. Um, then we complemented that by looking at corticosterone levels um, in our female animals to make sure that the effect that we were seeing wasn't simply um, just a result of an increase in corticosterone because we know from our work that corticosterone can drive visceral hypersensitivity on its own. And what were your key findings to emanate from your study? So I think we supported our hypothesis in finding that um, in our female animal population, the degree of hypersensitivity was definitely related to the context of life stress. Um, so those animals that were normosensitive following the early life insult, um, once subjected to a repetitive adulthood stressor, um, had this really exaggerated response mirroring our unpredictable female group. Um, that had this visceral hypersensitivity. So I think that was a really key finding and sort of a vulnerability factor. Um, but I also think that um, we should really highlight that our male animals had some sort of resilience factor, um, no matter whether we subject them to predictable or unpredictable early life stress, an acute or a repetitive stressor in adulthood. Um, we're not seeing any differences between those groups. Um, so there's the potential for a resilience factor there that I think is really interesting. Yes, absolutely. So Beverly, what do you think might be the underlying mechanisms here at play that explain these findings, particularly from transitioning from early life to, to adulthood? Well, Adam, that really is a key question. Um, basically, we do need to understand the underlying mechanisms, basically to determine why adverse early life experience, first of all, leads to increased visceral pain behaviors in adulthood, and another important question is, how does early life adversity affect an individual's response to an additional acute or chronic stressor in adulthood, which was the, the focus of our current paper? And as Dr. Prasada mentioned, one potential mechanism is abnormal HPA uh, and aberrant court release that may prime the stress axis and lead to abnormal stress response in adulthood. But interestingly, as Sheem just mentioned, we found no obvious differences in corticosterone release between the groups in adulthood, suggesting that differences in visceral sensitivity between rats exposed to this predictable versus unpredictable ELS is not the primary mechanism for the visceral hypersensitivity. So going back to your original question, at this point we're predicting that ELS or early life adversity, sorry, alters the expression of um, key genes within the central pain, pain circuitry. And we're emphasizing, and we're looking at in our lab right now, glucocorticoid receptors and CRF, corticotropin-releasing factor expression. And we're asking, are there changes in gene expression um, of, these, of CRF and glucocorticoid receptors within the central pain circuitry that we believe may occur as a consequence of epigenetic remodeling of this gene expression within the brain. And specifically, we're targeting the central amygdala um, but basically, uh, watch our future work and hopefully we can, we can tease out those mechanisms and, and, and publish that work and build upon what we've shown here in this paper. So Dawn, what do you think are the key strengths uh, but also the limitations of your study? Um, I think some of the key strengths are that we've included male and female animals for this sort of direct comparison. All these animals coming from the same litters, so there are a lot of built-in controls. Um, I think that 
Um, it's also a strength that we looked at both an acute and a chronic stress, and we've included all these different contexts. So um, within one study and one animal model, we're able to mirror so many different potential patient populations. Um, so I think that's really a strength of our study. Um, I think limitations, um, it may be interesting to look at um, not only corticosterone levels at the time that you do a VMR, but we could also look at sort of the shape of the recovery um, of their response to a stressor and see if maybe there are some um, differences there that may give us some insight into how we're reshaping this pain circuitry um, because we know that corticosterone um, works with um, pain circuitry and, and so there, there has to be some interplay between the duration of the stress um, and what's happening on a molecular level. So I think that's something for a future study, maybe not a direct limitation of this study, but something that we'd want to look at in the future. So in, in your opinion, uh, what do you think are the next steps in, in taking the field forward in this regard? I think that um, Dr. Greenwood Van Mierveld is moving in a great direction, looking at these changes in central amygdala um, molecular markers. Um, I think that focusing on the females is an obvious route, um, but I also think that we shouldn't forget about those male animals. Um, I think that a lot of times we focus on the group that has whatever um, phenotype we're looking for and that we want to study, but sometimes we should perhaps think about going back to those animals that are resilient. Um, we have animals that are resilient in several different early life stress paradigms and really figuring out what that mechanism is might help us to target those that are affected. So Beverly, if I could just ask you, what, what do you think are the important implications and correlates for, for human studies of IBS? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. As basic researchers, before starting this type of study, we basically sought to understand the IBS patient and then what our aim is is to develop an experimental model that recapitulates aspects of the human disease and uh, we think we we have done that in this in this study uh, we've got a, a combination of the early life stress and we've got uh, the adulthood stressor built upon that and we've really got a, I think a useful experimental tool to further understand the the IBS patient especially the female IBS patients that may have increased risk for the onset of visceral pain following early life adversity and adulthood stress. So using this model, we hope to ultimately identify the central molecular mechanisms of stress resilience and uh, stress vulnerability. And in animal models, we hopefully can, can do that. Some things we can do in animal models that we can't do in the human. Uh, in an animal model, it does uh, recapitulate aspects of, of IBS. Yes, I agree. I think uh, defining those uh, central mechanisms, particularly from the vulnerability, but also from the protective aspect, is, is really very important. So with that, I'd like to thank you both for a really excellent paper and assisting in the podcast this month, and also to our listeners for tuning in. I look forward to welcoming you again on another installment of the podcast uh, next month. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.